Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Thursday, April 28th, we're studying Acts chapter 2, verses 14 to 36. In answer to the confusion of the crowd, Peter stands up to proclaim the reality of what is happening on Pentecost and how that relates to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us Pastor Bernie Shea. Pastor Shea serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Old Dimebox, Texas. Pastor Shea, welcome to Sharper Iron. Thanks. Thanks, Pastor Apple. Appreciate it. Good to be here. Yeah, it's glad to, glad to have you here. Good to talk to you on air today as we look at Acts chapter 2, where you get the middle text of Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. So remind us of some context. What do we need to know leading up to what we're going to hear from Peter today? Well, uh, yeah, that, that's a good question. First of all, uh, you know, I'm not sure who your audience is, but I, it, it is important to remember, and, and all of us can, can do well to remember the fact that this is Luke, Volume 2, the Book of Acts. Luke's, Luke, Luke the Evangelist wrote the Gospel that bears his name, and then, of course, uh, and then he continued on with Volume 2, which is the Book of the Acts of the Apostles. And um, just before our reading is, is uh, well, obviously, Acts Chapter 1. And um, in that, uh, Luke repeated an account of the account of the ascension of Jesus, and then the listing of the apostles who were left, the 11, excluding Judas Iscariot, who had taken his own life, uh, the replacement then of Judas, and, uh, and uh, Matthias was chosen. And then that brings us to the day of Pentecost, that, that day 50 days after, after the Feast of Passover. Pentecost is a Greek word, you know, meaning 50, so seven times seven weeks, and, and it's also called the Feast of Weeks. Just before our reading, which begins at Acts 2, verse 14, um, there was the, the apostles were all gathered together. They were just in and up in a room together. There was a sound of a rushing wind. Tongues of fire appeared upon their heads. They began to speak in other languages. And uh, at that time, since it was the day of Pentecost, and here's another reminder for those who are Bible students and those who aren't, that uh, the, the Jewish people were expected, the Jewish men were expected to appear in Jerusalem three times a year for three different festivals. I, for the life of me, I don't know how they ever did it. One was the, <laughs> feast, for one, one was the feast of Pentecost, and the final, final one was the, um, um, uh, the, feast of, uh, uh, the Feast of Booths, uh, which came later on in the year. So how those guys, especially if they were living, you know, on the other end of the Mediterranean Sea. Well, I'm guessing they didn't do. I'm guessing that they didn't do it. But, uh, but it, at any rate, there were all kinds of people in Jerusalem at that time, just as there had been at Passover uh, seven weeks before, and uh, there was that listing of, of names. Uh, uh, <clears throat> oh, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, so on and so forth, and they all heard the disciples. Um, speaking in their own languages. 
I'm guessing they were obviously Jews who spoke Hebrew, Aramaic, but also language where of the place they were living. And that tends the mention of those names. Uh, Libya was also in there, North Africa. Um, yeah, I, I, again, we're this is still preview uh, before our, we begin the, the the text we're studying, verse fourteen. But I think it's uh, there must have been some Lutherans in there because uh, <laughs> that's right. Sort of. <laughs> so they, all, they all heard this going on they heard these uneducated galileans speaking there and they said what does this mean <laughs> that's I, a very lutheran thing to ask <laughs> i suppose they could have said too how is this done you that's know? right but, yeah yeah <laughs> what does this mean and that's and that's really where the text does pick up now of course some of them right. are asking that question in good faith some of them are also mocking the apostles saying they're drunk right. and peter's also right. going to pick that up Filled, filled with new light. Yeah, I wonder if I could say something about that. Too. Go for it. I, I, um, I had to make a comment about that. They're filled with new wine, and uh, um, well, I, I guess I guess we could start with with verse uh, um, verse fourteen. Then that that would be the. I divided this this reading uh, fourteen through thirty six into seven sections, and the last one is only one verse long. But. Um, yeah, I, uh, first, well, what what are those? How how did you structure this text? Because that can be helpful with a text as as lengthy as we've got. Well, how did how do you structure this? I mean, it's going to be a sermon primarily. How do you structure the text that we're going to look at? Yeah, it is uh, Peter. Right, uh, I did fourteen through sixteen, three verses. That's the intro by Peter, and then verses seventeen to twenty one is the quote from the prophet Joel, chapter two of Joel, and then. Verses 22 through 25a, that's uh, Peter's indictment of the people that he's talking to. When I say 25a, and it's, it's good to explain, a and b, it, it means the first half of the verse, and it may not be exactly half, but let's say the first half of verse 25. So the third section there is verses 22 through 25a. Uh, the fourth section would be 25b to 28. That's um, the quote from Psalm 16, the Psalm of David. The fifth section is verses 29 to 34a, where Peter explains what what uh, what Psalm 16 means and how it has bearing on what's going on right before their eyes. And then the sixth, sixth section is 34b to 35, where uh, there comes another Old Testament quote, Psalm 110, David David's quote of that, just that first verse of Psalm 110. And then the final section is just that one verse. And it's it's one verse, but uh, Peter is tired, uh, what I say, just giving a, a, a crowning touch yeah. to all of Or You called him, he is now made by God, Lord and Christ. And and uh, that's just one verse long. So. Yeah, that, I mean, so, the 36 is almost a, a climax to the sermon. This is the whole point of what Peter wants to preach. Yeah, I wasn't sure exactly which word I could use it. Uh, crowning dust, tying a bow on it, and almost you could almost hear him raise his voice and smack his uh, smack his 
Oh, maybe he had a podium or I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So that that is Peter's sermon and outline. We're going to hear him, as, as you pointed out, there's going to be three Old Testament texts that he's really going to preach from as he explains right. to them not only what is happening on the day of Pentecost, but everything that has led up to it through this one person, Jesus of Nazareth, as, as he will say. So let's go ahead and read this text. We're in Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 14 this morning. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, And your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. That's our text for today. That's Acts chapter 2, verses 14 to 36. Pastor Shea, you said the first three verses, 14 to 16, are Peter's introduction. How does, how does he begin this sermon? Yeah, the people, there must have been a tremendously um, a cacophonic mess going on there. They're hearing them speak in all these different languages, these known languages, and they say, what is going on here? And others say, oh, great. A little early to be imbibing, don't you think, you guys? And when Peter stands up, he says, okay, I, I'm, I'm here to explain to you what's going on. And, and he says, he specifically says to the ones, to the people of Judea and the ones who dwell in Jerusalem, 
maybe that means the ones who are staying in Jerusalem for now, because obviously they've come from other other regions. Um, he says, and this has always been a bit of a puzzlement to me. These men are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. And I thought, and I'm not going to make light of addictions, but I mean, when, when has that ever stopped anyone? <laughs> I, I, you heard the old joke, you know, if it's doesn't seem like an appropriate hour to have a beer someone will say well it's five o'clock somewhere in the world but uh, i don't know yeah it, it just I, I it just struck me as uh, as a little a little odd that he would say that but be that as it may he goes on to explain the, going back to the prophet joel now joel uh, did look refreshed my memory of a little bit about joel joel lived 750 for christ uh, Isaiah, uh, so Joel was a bit of a contemporary with Amos, and uh, Isaiah was about the year 700 BC. So if you want to get down to the exact years, that's that's okay. But but um, he does speak of these of, of strange things happening, today. and key in there is verse 17. And in the last days, when you see that, and I've, I've explained this in Bible class. Trinity Dimebox and other places too. When you see those words in that day or in the latter days or in the last days or in that great and terrible day of the Lord, you're, you always need to slam on the brakes and say, okay, what are we talking about? And you can think about the great and terrible day of the Lord when it was poured, the, the father's wrath was poured out upon his son or indeed the last day of this earth's existence. And these signs will be scattered throughout the time between the crucifixion of Jesus and the last day, the great day of judgment. Mm. So he says in the last days, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. So Peter's saying, guess what folks, that day is here. These latter days are here. I should make it plural better than that. Um, He's going to show wonders at the crucifixion of Jesus. The sky became darkened. The earth quaked uh, at the birth of Jesus. A star was given the wise men. All these things were done in order to prepare, to prepare and to announce the fact that the latter days are coming. It's really, it's really helpful to point that out. Uh, yeah, I, I would just if I can, Pastor Shea, because I, I think you're, you're exactly right to to really pay attention to the words in the last days. There at the beginning of this quote from the prophet Joel is very important. It's it's certainly important in the way that Peter uses it here to tell these people who are wondering what does this mean. The answer is the last days have come upon you, and and he's gonna. I mean, what's what's marvelous about this quote from Joel two is that he's going to take words that if you read them in the prophet Joel you may be wondering what's what is the prophet talking about the right. beauty of the way Peter takes it is that he's going to very clearly attach this to this is what happened in Jesus the last days are here because of what Jesus has done and and what you're starting to do already connecting these things to events in Jesus own life i think is the way you, you really have to take this quote from Joel chapter Joel chapter 2 because otherwise you're going to, I mean, you know, when, especially when he starts talking about blood and fire and, and sun being turned to darkness, moon to blood, you're gonna, scratching your head, what's going on? I think the move you're making, attaching them to the ministry of Jesus is, is exactly the right way to go. Yeah, I, I, uh, 
there's a Christocentricity there. I, it's a word I really like to use in, in Bible class and other words. And I'll explain to you. I taught a class at, at Concordia University in Austin a couple of years ago. And I, I, I wrote the word up on the whiteboard and, and said to you, folks, this word is not in the scriptures, but it characterizes what the scriptures are all about. Christ is at the center. Christocentricity. If you're one, if something doesn't make that hill of beans of sense to you, if you wonder what it's got to do with the price of bananas, then think about Christocentricity. What does this have to do with Jesus? And you may not get an answer right away, but if you see those, those back, may I call them buzzwords, in the last days, in the latter days, in that day, you're, you're gonna, you know you're on something having to do with that, that central event in, in human history, which we observed uh, three days ago now, um, Good Friday. That's right. Well, and, and you know what, Pastor Shea, I know, I know the word technically, Christocentric, is not technically in the scriptures. And, and yet, as you mentioned at the very beginning of our conversation, we're reading the second volume that Luke has written. And at the right. end of the first volume, Jesus, though he didn't use the word Christocentric, he said that that's what the scriptures are. He, he said it himself at the end of Luke's gospel, that all the scriptures are about his death and resurrection. And that's precisely what Peter is, I mean, Peter is doing here what Jesus taught him to do, which is, as you said, to interpret the scriptures with Christ at the center. Yeah, that, that's in the, uh, speaking with the Emmaus disciples, right? Is that what you're talking about? Well, that, yes. Yeah, he does that with the Emmaus disciples. And then later, that same, after after the Emmaus disciples return, he appears to them, all of the yeah. disciples, and he opens their minds to understand the scriptures and says, thus it is written. And there he even, you know, it says, uh, Mo, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, all of it's about Jesus. Yeah, it's, it's, right. it's basically says the same thing to the to the two groups of people. Yeah, that's, that's right. after he fish, uh, the piece of royal fish. Uh, okay, great. Right. So, uh, so this is what this is what Peter is doing here with Joel chapter two, and what he's going to do with the Psalm quotes that we're going to come to later. Before we get too far past it, you you had sure. mentioned the thing about it being the third hour of the day. And, and I think uh, you're right, to our modern ears, that strikes us as a, a strange objection for Peter to make. We say, well, maybe not. You know, maybe maybe there would be people who have imbibed too much already. But in uh, there's, a I think, a helpful note in the Lutheran Study Bible that suggests that the third hour of the day would have been the hour of prayer for many of these men who, as you said, are gathered here in Jerusalem at the Lord's command to do so three times a year. The third hour of the day for them— perhaps would have had more significance to them as an hour of prayer than maybe it does for us, our modern ears today. Okay. I did, I, that hadn't occurred to me. That's a, that's a, that's a good point. Yeah. Re- so, I was, well, I just, uh, yeah, I thought it was a helpful, a helpful comment because, and again, it's something that our ears maybe don't hear the right way. And I, I thought that that comment from the Lutheran study Bible is helpful. So take us back into that. What, what Joel is doing here. We've got the last days at the beginning the pouring out of the Spirit. I mean, you get the sons and daughters prophesying, so that seems to attach to the speaking in tongues. What are some other things that we need to pick up from this quote from Joel? Well, here, uh, let me give some Joel context, too. The, Joel's only three chapters long, by, by the way we number it and arrange it. Uh, the first chapter is nothing but pure law, and the gospel only starts into, uh, um, let's see what it is, until the 12th chapter of, of uh, chapter 12 verse, excuse me, of chapter two. And then he starts speaking of, ah, here's what, 
what's going to happen in the last days. I will pour out my spirit. That's not law. That's gospel. He's going to pour out the Holy Spirit and they'll prophesy. And I think it's important that we understand when we say prophesy. Uh, let me say, uh, make a comment about how this passage can be misused. Back in the late 1960s, there was a television show about ESP, extra sense perception. That is to say, you, you have a clear premonition of something happening five minutes or five days or five hours before it happens. And right at the beginning of that television show, they used this very passage. Uh, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, shall dream dreams. Absolutely nothing to do with Christ, you know. <laughs> so when we speak of prophecy, everyone thinks about telling the future. And it does have to do with telling the future. But prophesying also has to do with speaking to the present, what's going on right now. Look through the, the prophets, uh, uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, uh, Ezekiel, and all of them. Do they speak of the future? Yes, indeed they do. They also speak to the present situation that they had, and therefore the one that's going on with us. Uh, I remember learning in I don't know, maybe it was Sunday school. What does a prophet do? Well, he foretells and he foretells. Foretells, talks about the future, and he foretells. He's talking about what's going on right now. And the, um, the let's take it back to the text here. The visions are saying, how about um, the fact that uh, uh, Joseph, the guardian of Jesus, had a couple of dreams, of several dreams, concerning what he should do with Mary and this little boy. Uh, same thing with the wise men. Uh, 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 your old men shall dream. Uh, maybe Joseph was more of an old man. <laughs> maybe I should put it that way. But uh, the Holy Spirit would be po poured out nonetheless. And it seems as though with the life of Christ, this, this dam was building in pressure mm. and was break as it did on the day of pentecost maybe a comment or two are good about that what was the difference the, the holy spirit has always had always been with the people of god it always been in the world in the second verse of the bible genesis 1 2 and the spirit of god hovered upon the face of the waters but the difference is that the, the dam broke on the holy spirit and what i mean by that is that uh, um First of all, the Holy Spirit would not almost exclusively be given to the Jews alone, but to all people who call on the name of the Lord. Not only that, but while people who were paying attention and reading those Old Testament scriptures knew that the Lord would promise, the Lord had promised deliverance and would one day actually give it, they didn't know all the details. They didn't know exactly how he would do it. They had plenty of the details, but not exactly how. And now, in Christ, the Lord had shown exactly how he won reconciliation for all people, not just for the Jews. From the Jews, was Jesus a Jew? Of course. But now that Holy Spirit would reveal exactly how he did it and why he did it. And it would be able to be broadcast for all. Um, yeah, in, in I, I like... I like that image, Pastor Shea, that you put in our minds of the of everything kind of building into this this dam, and then the pressure being released, or the the moment for everything to overflow, 
what what Peter's going to say is that that moment is Jesus, and and he's really going to to take it through his whole ministry. He's, I mean, I suppose he doesn't he doesn't really start doesn't say much about the birth of Jesus, but I think we can we can include that here. But he is going to take this this sermon all the way from everything that Jesus did in his ministry up through what they're seeing happening on this day of Pentecost. That Jesus, the the incarnation the suffering, the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension, and now his giving of the Holy Spirit, all of that is what has caused this dam to burst. And and because of that, these people are seeing what's happening right now. And and the beauty of, of what Peter does here is that he takes the people beyond what they're seeing. We talked about this in the in the previous episode, that the the signs of the day of Pentecost are are pretty captivating, but we can never separate them from the word. And that's what Peter does so marvelously here, is he makes sure that, that the people don't just see the signs and say, oh, that was really cool, but they see the signs and they get what the Lord wants them to get. And and that's why he's, you know, the preaching of the word here is so key to what's happening. Yeah, thank you for pointing that out. That was why I mentioned that television show. It took it away from the context. Or when someone says they want to do a Bible study on prophecy, oh. as a friend of mine puts it, what they really want is what they want to know is when's World War Three going to start? I thought, well, okay, it's kind of like not the point, you know. There will be wars and rumors of wars. Let's talk about Christ, Christocentricity, and and the, the defining event of mankind, the, the death of Jesus. Him, he's saying it is finished, and and uh, yes, this, the sun was turned to darkness at that time. The moon is to blood. Pastor Apple, did you ever get people saying, hey, um, when you have one of those those blood moons, the copper moons, they, they'll ask, um, is this a sign of the end? And the answer is, well, yeah, it is. But but let's talk about why it's a sign of the end. Next week? No, maybe not. Who knows? And in a sense, we got to say, who cares? Point is, keep your eyes on Christ. Yes. Uh, keep your eyes on Christ. Uh, I told you I, meant, I mentioned that I taught that class. I began and ended with one of my favorite passages uh, of the scriptures. Um, Jesus did many other things that were not written, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Uh, John 20, verses 30 and 31. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. Let's keep that at the center and let every other question radiate out from from that but yeah no that that's a that's an excellent point pastor Shea. and and i appreciate the way that that you're saying it. it it reminds me of the way jesus spoke and again in luke's gospel particularly in chapter 21 where he he says you know when you see these things begin to take place you straighten up and lift up your heads because you know that your redemption is drawing near the way that Peter makes use of this quote from Joel 2 is very similar. I mean, yes, these are the signs that you're seeing. What's the point? Call upon the name of the Lord so that you what? may be saved. Yeah, yeah and, and that's the beauty of it. And, and Pastor Shea, with that, we do need to take our break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're talking Acts chapter 2, Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost with Pastor Bernie Shea. We'll be right back. Please stick around.
Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Thursday, April 28th. We're studying Acts chapter 2, verses 14 to 36 with Pastor Bernie Shea. He serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Old Dime Box, Texas. Pastor Shea, prior to the break, we were talking about Peter's use of the quote from Joel chapter 2, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Well, even for these people, Pastor Shea, you, you mentioned you divided the text here as you've got the indictment coming next. So so even these people, Pastor Shea, what, how does Peter address them? Okay, he's no doubt speaking to a Jewish audience there. He says, all of you have seen all of these things. You've seen or heard about it. We can interpolate that. About this Jesus of Nazareth. He did works and wonders and signs, which are pretty much the same thing, works, wonders, and signs. He has mentioned words, but all that would be folded up in there, too. He did that in your midst, and you know about it. But what happened? Well, God had a plan. He had a definite plan and a foreknowledge. And wicked men then crucified and killed him. Flawless men, that the text says. But despite that, God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death. Because in his, And this is very important. It was not possible for him to be held by it, by death, that is. And yes, Peter's saying, um, well, you know, you made a good point. You said that by our own modern thinking concerning um, nine o'clock in the morning, uh, having had too much to drink, but could the crowd have responded? Oh, okay, well, if this is God's foreknowledge and his plan and his pattern, then we were just following along and we're, we're part of it and God could thank us for it. Well, not exactly. No, that's 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 really not. And, and Paul, Paul, excuse me, Peter, beg your pardon. Peter pauses to say, here's how he could not be um, held in, in the bonds of death. And that's the, the section four that I've got. He quotes Psalm. Yeah, he, he, he's going to quote from Psalm 16. Let me let me talk a little bit or, or ask you a little bit more about this section over on three, the indictment, oh, and and yeah. how, I mean, why we, we call it an indictment. This is the way that, that I hear it, and I, I wonder if, if, if you would agree with this, that, that Peter says, look, Jesus of Nazareth, he's, he clearly calls him a man, but then he says he's a man attested by God. And you know what he did. And and the way I'm, I'm hearing it, and I think this is an indictment, is that you should have recognized who he was. You should have recognized that he wasn't just a man, but he is, in fact, the God-man, as Peter will make plain later after when he gets to the resurrection more fully. But you didn't. You didn't recognize who he was, the, the one that God was attesting to you. Instead, you delivered him to be crucified. And, and I think when it says, into the hands of lawless men, like, you know, you you gave him over to the Romans. You let the Gentiles have their way with him. How could you do this? That's that's the way. I mean, I, I think it's a it's a pretty strong accusation. You killed Jesus, and you shouldn't have done that. Hmm. Never thought of the law. 
never thought of the lawless men as being the Romans. I mean, that's true, too, but I, I didn't. Yeah. But yeah, it, it is an accusation and it is an indictment. But I thought of the lawless men of those who were not really all that interested, even though they were experts in the Jewish law. They weren't interested. They were just worried about the Romans taking their place away from them. I guess they were um, more interested in keeping this beautiful temple that it, the great had built up. That was my take on it anyway. Is that uh, well, I mean, awesome. part part of the reason I, I'm I'm hearing that when it says the lawless men is is some of the things, and I know this is this goes into what, oh, what Paul preaches oh. later about you know those like, particularly like the Book of Romans, and he says to the Jews, you had the law and you broke it, and the Gentiles maybe they didn't know what the law was that they broke it too, and that's kind of where I'm I'm reading that lawless oh. men more as the Gentiles, and also I'm I'm I've been reading it a little bit ahead in the Book of Acts too into into chapter three, and in yeah. in the next sermon that Peter will preach. He makes the point that Pilate actually wanted to release Jesus, which of course is true. We know from the narrative, and so I'm, I'm, I'm wondering again. That's that's where I'm, I'm thinking this lawless men is a bit of an accusation against them, saying you, you Jews, you shouldn't have been handing one of your own over to the Romans to have him killed, but that's what you did, making that indictment all the stronger and more pointed. Mm-hmm. Fine, that, that makes me think of something else. You mentioned Pilate, and you know, I believe it's Matthew who tells us that. Have I got that right? Matthew tells us that Pilate's wife had a That's right. suffer quite a bit because of a, a dream about this man. Well, wait, wait a minute. Holy Spirit got to Pilate's wife, this you know, this Roman noblewoman. Well, you know, I mean, if Cornelius, the Roman centurion, could be a believer, then, then perhaps Pilate's wife was too. And I believe there's an early church tradition. I think it's pretty strongly attested to that that Pilate did become a Christian, if I'm not mistaken, later on. But, but um, so yeah. again, the the point that Peter is making though is that to these people, you killed Jesus. That was your own fault, and I appreciate you bringing that out. That he does not let them off the hook for their sin, <laughs> even though all of this does happen according to God's will. Those two things are held in tension, and we have to to live with that tension because that's the way the scriptures speak. It is God's will. For his son to suffer in this way, and yet the people who did that are held accountable for their sin. Now, of course, there is gospel coming for them. That's where Peter is taking sure. them. But those two things go together, and we, we never need to we we don't want to lose sight of that. No, and and Peter, you know, Peter is guilty too. When he says that's right. he's saying too, this is the guy who denied his savior that's three right. times and then ran for the high grass when with all the rest of them too, and when the soldiers came out with all their weapons, even though he got a, 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 an ear out of it from Malchus, the servant there. Well, let, yeah, let's go on. Uh, sure, take, take us into the Psalm, Psalm 16 quote. Yeah, this is, I, there's something interesting here that I'd never seen before. Now, um, David is right. David, I believe, is responsible for 73 of the 150 Psalms. So that's almost exactly half. David, the shepherd boy, the shepherd king, had his faults, as we all know. But, but uh, who is the man who, who is the man whose whose heart was after the Lord? Well, I, I looked over Psalm 16, and uh, it's interesting that at the end of the Psalm, Psalm 16, Peter does not quote the last half of that verse. And the last half of that verse is, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And I just wondered, now, why didn't you just finish the whole thing? And again, it's far be it for me to second guess 
the Holy Spirit. <laughs> but uh, but well, I, I, you know it, what? I, if I if I can, I I don't I don't know if this is why or not. But maybe maybe it's because Peter's saving that for his Psalm one hundred ten quote because that's that's coming up, and the the sitting at the right hand is gonna well, actually, is gonna come it, up. Yeah, it comes right before that in verse thirty three. But but I'll get to that in a minute. There was a you know, uh, and I I do wonder. I I would love to. I, I, when we get to heaven, I do want to find out how all this worked. How David wrote this thing, knew that, and there, there are those who say, "Oh, David had to have been writing about himself. How else? How else he could have? Could he have done it otherwise?" Well, okay, hold on a second here. No permanent stay in Hades, the place of the dead. No corruption. And Peter says, "I guess I'm going on to the next section." Sure, that's fine. That uh, well, look, here's the deal. Here we are in Jerusalem. David's tomb is right over there, down the street. Uh, apparently, it's been lost over the centuries, perhaps uh, with the destruction of Jerusalem in uh, AD seventy. But, but um, um, that, that he, there's no way Peter is saying that David could have been talking about himself. Here's a, a, a parallel hill in uh, Acts eight. Uh, Philip, the deacon, is uh, led down uh, what is it? The uh, road to Azotus and. Uh, and uh, he is uh, runs into an Ethiopian eunuch, uh, official in the in the court of the uh, Ethiopian queen Candace. The man is reading aloud what we call what we number as Isaiah fifty three, and the the official, the Ethiopian official, asks Philip, "Who is he talking about? Himself or someone else?" Great springboard for Philip to spring in and show the Christocentricity of Isaiah 53, as Peter is doing with um, uh, Psalm 16 here, too. Hmm. And puzzlement on the part of those reading this. So again, we, we, we have to, we assert the Christocentricity. This is about Jesus. Right. And if you're all wondering, if you're wondering what it's being talked about, well, think about it in terms of Christ, and it may make a lot more sense a lot more sense to you. Yeah, well, I, he, just to, to add uh, to that, Pastor Shea, we, we saw Peter do the same thing in the company of the, the church in chapter 1 when they were getting ready to find the, the 12th apostle, the one to replace Judas. Peter, sure. as he begins his address there, says this this comment that is it's introductory, but it's important theologically. He says that the Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David. And, and mm. the same thing applies here to these quotes. David, yes, he's the one who wrote them down, but it is the Holy Spirit speaking by the mouth of David. And, and that's the same thing applies. And again, well, who's the Holy Spirit going to talk about but Jesus? And so, you know, when you, when you keep in mind that the Holy Spirit is the author of the scriptures, the one who inspires David to write these things down, yeah, he's not talking about himself, but he's actually speaking prophetically. And here... We use the word prophetically in the sense that you said foretelling. Here, David is foretelling the resurrection of Jesus in Psalm 16. Sure, yeah, in no uncertain terms. And who, I know there's a a lot of made, a lot of hay made out of the fact that there are certain Christians who die and they're called, they're said to be incorrupt. Um, well, <laughs> meaning they're, they, they don't decay. I thought, well, okay, on the other hand, uh, I suppose you could say that about King Tut too. I don't want to be too antagonistic here, but I, uh, you you desiccate to dry out a corpse, and it, it'll stay pretty much the same. But uh, well, 
who is the only one who really had no corruption right. bodily from the dead still with his wounds all right so yeah yeah well and, and just to make the point again i just because i don't i don't want to lose this it and i i guess you can't prove this but the sense that i get from peter here is that he quotes from psalm 16 and to make the point, David couldn't have been talking about himself. It's almost like he points. I, I always picture Peter with his finger extended here, pointing at wherever David's tomb would have been, which apparently they would have known. Say, look, if you want to go see that this psalm isn't about David, just go visit his tomb over there, and you'll find that he's still there. His body is there. So this psalm can't be about David. Rather, it's about someone else, namely Christ. Yeah. And I, 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 we, can, we can all do that. We can all veer off the point and make it not about Christ. And Peter's trying to keep, okay, let's stick with the, with, with the Christocentricity of this going on here. Yeah. That's what he says in verse 29 there. Dyden was buried. His tomb is with us here. And I, I mentioned about lopping off the last, uh, the last half of uh, Psalm 16. I believe it's the last, is it verse 16 of Psalm 16? Uh, I'm a little confused now. Psalm 16, verse 11. Peter, That's what it, Yeah, Peter Peter does not include the, the very end of the quote where it says, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. But but here in, uh, yeah, in verse 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves seeing and hearing well when we think of pleasures we think of uh, a really good steak or uh, or a good cigar but you know maybe maybe knowing god and is is a little more pleasurable than that mm. being being reconciled being at peace with god through our lord jesus christ it's a greater pleasure than that we do have a tendency to look at certain words through the prism or through the lenses of our own day and time and our own culture but yeah, the the great pleasure there is uh, is being at the right hand of God and Him constantly interceding for us. Before mm-hmm. saw about the resurrection of Christ, that He was not abandoned to Hades, nor did His flesh see corrupt, corrupt see corruption. And finally, He's exalted to the right hand of God. And Paul mentions that in Romans eight too. Okay. Yeah, I mean, just to, to to catch that last part of his explanation of Psalm 16, it, notice how, how Peter does make the move. He's talked about Jesus' signs and wonders, his crucifixion, then the, the resurrection, God raised him up. And now in verse 33, you get the exalted to the right hand of God, so the, the ascension of our Lord and his session at the right hand, which, you know, in, in Acts chapter 1, you get the narrative of that. Now Peter's proclaiming it here, what it means. And then he takes them to the very present day, that this is Jesus now pouring out the Holy Spirit. He's fulfilling the promise that he made. That's why they had been waiting in Jerusalem. Go back to Acts chapter 1 again, before Jesus ascended. He tells them, you wait here in Jerusalem until the promise is, is given. That day has come. And again, it's it's all centered in Jesus and what he's doing. Uh, before we before we move into that Psalm 110 quote, Pastor Shea, just briefly, in, in verse 32, I don't want to skip over it too, too quickly, but just at least make mention that Peter says, this Jesus God raised up, and then he says, of that we all are witnesses. Certainly... The people, I suppose they could have seen it, but he's talking, I think, specifically about the promise Jesus had made that 
they're going to be witnesses of the fact of Jesus' resurrection that's being fulfilled here in Acts chapter 2. Oh, yeah. The, uh, wait, there was some of 500 at the same time. Right. Uh, I said a little later there in First uh, Corinthians, I think. First um, Corinthians 15, wasn't it? Yeah, that's, that's right. right. Uh, yeah, that's a good point. We're witnesses of the resurrection. I, I have often wondered, and again, it's an unanswerable question, if any unbelievers also saw it. I, I'm guessing there probably would have been. But, well, to to that point, I, you know, I think in in First Corinthians fifteen, Jesus' brothers, like James, were witnesses mm-hmm. of the resurrection, and it seems that that is the means by which Jesus converted them. And of course, later in Acts chapter nine, Saul, Paul, he will encounter the risen Jesus, become a witness of the resurrection as an unbeliever who then becomes a believer. So. I, I mean, I think, yeah, there, there's at least a couple, but I think at, at large, he comes to his own disciples to show them that he is, in fact, alive, and then to do this precise thing, so that at, on the day of Pentecost, they are there as these witnesses testifying to the truth of what Jesus has told them and what he's shown them. Now, I, um, and all of it's, it, it's coming to a head here, is you I mentioned a, a, a climax on verse 36, but... All yeah, of so this... keep keep taking us there, Pastor Shea. We got the quote from Psalm 110 before we get to that climax. Let me let me say one more thing about um, uh, the, the section about uh, uh, Peter holding forth on Psalm 16. Uh, that in verse 30, uh, knowing that God had sworn with those to, to him, an oath to him, excuse me, that he would set one of his descendants on his throne... That's interesting. You know, I will set a descendant on your throne, you know, and he will reign over the house of David forever. And of course, that was one of the promises given by the angel to Joseph and to, and to Mary. You will reign over the house of Israel forever. What kind of a, what kind of a, uh, um, kind of a wonder is that? Um, they, it, it had to have been, had to have seemed like an impossible dream as the centuries wore on. Now, David lived about a thousand years before the birth of Jesus at Bethlehem. So but, you know, we've all heard of Arthurian legend that Arthur will come back and rule England. Okay, okay, nice. Not quite the same thing, but that is, a, I would say that's probably a fair, that's probably, not, that's definitely a fairy tale, but, uh, but this, it, 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 did it get to the point where people said, well, maybe he meant something else. Maybe there won't really be a son, an actual son, an actual descendant of David. But here we have exactly, exactly that indeed. That God fulfilled his promise in ways that none of us could ever have imagined. You know, he doesn't consult us. He does his work <laughs> without uh, an advisory council of you and me and everyone else. And, yeah, then he goes to Psalm 110. That's a, a brief portion. He says, um, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, um, Jesus did point out that that very verse. That's verse one of Psalm 110. That uh, he said, he said, well, how can you know, if David's writing this, how can the Lord said to my Lord, how can 
if if the Messiah is the son of David, if the Christ is the son of David, how can he be his Lord too? I said, oh, we don't know. That was a very puzzling puzzling conundrum that Jesus put before the people he was talking to. But he does said he does say to his son, "Sit at my right hand until I make needs your footstool." Uh, the thing I wanted to say about oh, here we go. Got my notes uh, right. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now that's later on in the, in the same Psalm verses verse four b, and that had to be understood as messianic. As the years went by, I'm sure there got to be a lot of misunderstanding, misinformation and disinformation about the psalm, about exactly what David was talking about and who he was talking about. But again, Peter brings it back to, to center on Christ. This is Melchizedek. This is the, the, the priest who had no origin. This is the one who is, who is the son of David, yet the son of God. And David's... David's son, yet David's Lord, as the hymn puts it. The magnificent thing. And he, he had to be really astonishing the people in this crowd that day. And uh, I don't know. Are we, I we're coming we got about here. six minutes here, Pastor Shea. Oh, okay. All right. Oh, anyway. I, I'm just coming to the to the very last verse then. Yes, yes. Well, just briefly on Psalm 110, you know, you mentioned yeah. that Jesus himself quotes this same verse about himself during Holy Week. Psalm Psalm 110, and you also mentioned the, another verse that gets quoted. I think the writer right. to the Hebrews particularly right. makes use of that verse about Melchizedek. So Psalm 110 as a whole is very much a messianic psalm. It's very important for us as we think about who Jesus is. And once again, this is David speaking prophetically about the one who is his son, and yet it is at the same time his Lord. And what a—I mean, I have to, as a as a preacher myself, to marvel at the way that Peter's sermon just flows so naturally from one scripture quote to the next, all leading to this climax that he's going to make in verse 36. So, so take us into the way Peter just draws it all together so marvelously there in the last, in the last verse. Let all the house of Israel, wherever Israel is, where was Israel? Well, of course, there were believers in Jerusalem and Judea and Galilee and so on, and probably even a few refugees in Samaria. But but we, we know about the huge Jewish population of Alexandria and North Africa and stretching all the way over in so many other places that, that whether the house of Israel was there in Pal what we call Palestine, whether it was elsewhere, let everyone know. That God has made him, has declared him both Lord and Christ. And the word for Lord there in original is kurios. You know how we have the Kyrie in the liturgy. Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy. And yes, Lord can refer to a, a human being, a, the Lord of these lands all over. Or, uh, But here it means Lord God. Not only that, but Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, the one who has been chosen from the foundation of the universe. This Jesus, whom you crucified. Uh, that's a, <laughs> he doesn't end on a note of gospel, does he? <laughs> well, it, it certainly doesn't sound like it from the—that's where he wants to go, you know? I mean, you know that's where he wants to go, because that is that is where he does go. When, and we get, we get to talk about this one 
tomorrow. But when you think, again, go back to what the Lord had taught his apostles before he ascended, that, as you pointed out, all Scripture is Christocentric, Christ is at the center, and it's for the purpose of preaching repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And so, yeah, it looks like Peter's aiming at repentance right here, but for the purpose of preaching the forgiveness of sins, which is where he's going to take it, and we'll get to see that tomorrow. I, but but you're right, there's that accusation coming up here again. I was just sort of regretting ending on that passage. Not really. You know, there's... Well, and, yeah. and that's where, you know, earlier we were talking about this in the in the section when it comes to the, the in, what you call, indictment, that, yeah. you know, there is that indictment. Look, you crucified him. You should have known better, but you crucified him. And so the, the question kind of hangs in, at this part of the sermon. Well, if I, even I who crucified the Lord, if I call on his name, will I be saved? That's the question that's really hanging here. And again, it's the question we're going to hear them ask, and Peter's going to answer with the gospel into, in the text for tomorrow. But that is the way that this sermon, I think, is meant to function, is to, to leave them wondering, and, and you know, how, how can I be saved? I crucified the Lord. And I think that's a question that we all ought to to ask and answer. And as you said, in our recent observance of Holy Week, it was a question that we answered. You know, my sins put him there. Is it for me? And of course, the, the good news, the gospel is, yes, it is. So, Pastor Shea, we got about two minutes here. Help us wrap oh, yeah. it up, bring it bring it home for us. Give give us the gospel today. I may cheat a little bit here too, but but uh, that, that was a, he did end that. But, and don't, let's not forget um, that Peter is indicting himself too. Peter knows very well that he denied Jesus three times. And they were on the beach. Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you ask him three times? The reinstatement of Peter. Peter knew his sins. First time he met Jesus, the huge catch of fish. And he says, go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. Of course, then he got cocky, as we all do. And he walked on the water and he started to sink. And you name everything else that happened with impetuous Peter. But, but Peter had to know that he was involved also in the death of Jesus. And even if he hadn't betrayed Jesus three times, he, I think every every preacher, every proclaimer of the gospel has to know that. We are all in this together. We are all indicted together. We all receive that good news of forgiveness together. I said I was going to cheat there. That, that next passage is one I, verse 37. It's, it's for your guest commentator tomorrow, but... Sometimes when I finish a sermon, I'd almost rather someone walk out saying that I was cut to the heart rather than, hey, good sermon, pastor. <laughs> you preach it, brother. Cut to the heart. But I'll leave that for you. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And and we, having been cut to the heart then, what is what yeah. will Peter say? Repent, be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And that is the forgiveness that Peter has, that you and I have, that all who trust in this Savior, Jesus Christ, we have it together. Pastor Bernie... Pastor Bernie, yeah, all who call the name of the Lord will be saved. That's right, Pastor Shea. Pastor Bernie Shea is pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Old Dimebox, Texas, helping us today with Acts chapter 2, verses 14 to 36. Pastor Shea, thanks for being our guest today. Thanks. Thanks for it. I enjoyed it. God bless. He's, the Lord is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Acts chapter 2, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the open mic feature on the app to send a message to us. We always love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.